Hi, I'm Avril Miller, and you're listening to Gut Talks. Double G, U, double T. Hi, everyone. I'm Maria, and welcome to Gut Talks, double G, U, double T, a podcast I started to connect, reconnect, and meet like-minded individuals and put some karma on the board. In this episode, we put together an existing segment of season three. So instead of listening in batches, you get to listen to the entire conversation. We had over 89,000 downloads to date, starting from zero, with no sponsors. And it's a 100% self-funded podcast. Thank you so much for hanging around and listening to the episodes. And I have one ask only. I'd love to have your feedback to keep the show up to your expectations. So drop me a line at maria at gut. .com, and like, share, or leave a review if you can. Now let's get started. Avril Miller is a leading London business mentor with a wealth of experience that many can benefit from. Her clients call her the COCO. She's an advisor and non-executive director, to name a few. She's been through a lot and helped CEOs cope with their day-to-day challenges, grow their business, and achieve their vision. She's also the author of the Kama Sutra of Work, and she calls herself the Bullshit Detector, and I love that. So, Avril, thank you so much for being on Gut Talks, and let's kick this off with the Bullshit Detector. Where does this come from? The reality is that over the years, and I'm quite a lot older now, I've got very, very fed up pandering to people just making stuff up and waffling around things. And I haven't I haven't got the time or the attention for it anymore. And I've got a very, very good sniff test when people are winging it. So I call it out really quickly. What's your relationship with your gut feeling? How do you approach your gut feeling? Oh, I'm absolutely convinced and have been for many decades of the connection between body and mind and brain. And it's wonderful for me that now they recognize that the gut is the second brain. I remember years ago in the 70s, there was a book called The Tao of Physics came out by Fritjof Capra. And it was the first book that made the connection between Eastern mysticism and Western, particularly quantum physics and quantum mechanics. And then, of course, that grew significantly into work like Candace Pert and Molecules of Emotion. And then the body keeps the score and the body has a mind of its own. As far as I'm concerned, if you don't stay tuned in to all of that, you're absolutely missing the majority of the information that's heading in your direction. I like the uh, kind of scientific approach to how you're describing this. And this is coming somehow from your background in uh, civil engineering as well. But then the gut is not something maybe many very science-driven people relate to. It really depends. So how was this transformation for you from like being very if you want engineering driven to Mm. also following your God, did you have some sort of, you know, challenge and trying to block this? I think over the years, I mean, what happens is, you know, I've got, I don't know, I mean, I'm 70 now, so I've got 40, 50 years working experience. Some people have 50 years of experience, which is one year 50 times, and other people have 50 years. And the layering on of things, ability when things happen to look back and say, well, what should I have noticed? Could I have noticed? What did I ignore in terms of signals, feelings, thoughts, information? Because we spend all our lives filtering information. You know, we delete, we distort, we generalize all the time. And how many more pieces can I bring into play 
and trust that I'm, I can't quite nail why I don't feel right about it. And actually, the more you do it, the more you get able to articulate. That's the thing that made me think it. But it, it for me, it was quite a lot of years of learning to trust that although I couldn't articulate what the wider senses were telling me, that I knew what the feeling was and I had to go with it. And as time has gone on, I've got better at saying, oh, the minute I heard this, saw this, read that, that was it. I got it there. So did you have this kind of aha moment where like, now I... I don't really think I've ever had many aha moments, but I've certainly had aha in retrospect. Mm -hmm. In the sense of, I've got to a certain point of my in my life and then realized that I have incorporated into my way of being something that I hadn't realized was quite as seismic. And I sort of realized, oh, ah, actually I do that. And before that, I hadn't really thought about it. So perhaps 2020 hindsight, yeah. Who was Avril the child up until today? Because you said you're 70 and you have 50 plus years of experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting you should ask because I'm actually writing a memoir just now. I've been having to spend time in that childhood time. And it's quite interesting because I was adopted. I had a very unusual, very strange family upbringing with quite a lot of quite extreme, bizarre things happening. And they have absolutely categorically formed me. And I think that that combination of nature and nurture has been really, really interesting, especially now that I'm looking at it through the lens of this end of my life. How have I become what I've become? when I could have gone any one of another multiple different ways. And I think I've been very, very blessed. I was blessed with accidentally good genetics around certain things. I've got a few accidentally very bad genetics as well. I was blessed with, although I had very bonkers and rather peculiar, much, much older adoptive parents, they did bring me up with a very strong commitment to work, the Protestant work ethic, to dedication, to learning, etc., and also a strong faith. And I think those three things have, over the years, shaped me. Never in a straight line. It's a bit like a stock market graph, isn't it? There's a lot of up and down in it, but so long as the general trend is growth. The way you're speaking, I'm visualizing this as also kind of the iterative process when we talk yeah. about design. So you have mm -hmm. all this uh, kind of brouillon-like draft and then it's straight for a moment so you have clarity and then you start again mm -hmm. so it's like um, a loop so it's interesting you're, you're writing a memoir and this is like that would be your second release well my first one I don't really count it because it was a book that was written really a humorous attempt because I was saying the same things over and over and over again particularly to younger women although it's applicable to young women and men about the nature of work and that was where the Kama Sutra of work came from because I was struggling writing it because every time I wrote it, I was boring myself to tears. And when I happened to be speaking about that with a friend and I, she was talking about networking and I said, I don't call it networking, I call it lubrication. And she laughed and it took me down there. Well, why don't we just make it a bit rude and a bit funny and link it into the language of sex? And actually it's done very well and people love it, but it's not... Um, I would call it a proper book. And then where I hope is going to be a bit more profound, equally entertaining, I hope. I'm just curious on how your brain works, just to come up with these chapters. So, okay, I've got them here in front of me. Talking dirty, top shelf, between the sheets, Russian dolls, 
turn-ons, masturbation, exploration, keeping it up, a girl's best friend, self-love, coming first, filthy lucre, oral, down a bit, left a bit, lubrication, yes, 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 all fired up, does my bum look big in this, faking it on top and more. So I invite, I'm going to be putting the link anyway. So what did you have in mind? How you want to convey the information in a fun, engaging way, but also like right to the core of what you're trying to say here, because the chapters are also short, which is great. It's a very short book. It was designed to be short and punchy. You could dip into it. I mean, in all honesty, as I say, when when I thought about wanting to write it, I found myself boring. And then I was trying to think back to how do I talk? If I have someone in front of me or a group or an audience in front of me, I talk exactly like this. And I find an analogy and I find a metaphor and I talk about it and I put a bit of a funny story into it and I do it reasonably quickly and I'm irreverent and I thought I have to do that. And the minute I got the lubrication notion, I started, in fact, I think what we did was that night we got post-it notes out and they put up post-it notes with all the different, some of the phrases that you have and words that you have there, which are the chapter titles. And each one immediately lent itself to something I could say around work in that. It, it was quite easy to twist the meaning into something that would be relevant for work. And because I knew the chapters were going to be very short, I then said, well, let's have 69 short chapters. Once the structure fell out, it was the easiest thing in the world to throw out, really. It took me two years of boring myself rigid and then about two months of just throwing it down on the paper. Wow. Okay. So when's your memoir also going to be released? Oh, gosh, I don't know. That's a different kettle of fish. That's one I'm actually taking quite seriously. And still need to get an agent. An agent needs to love it. And someone needs to want to publish it. And who knows, maybe no one will want it. But I hope so. I think it's a good story. I think it will be an entertaining read. And I think it will give people some hope and some inspiration, realization. But sometimes you just put one foot in front of the other every day. So you worked in wealth management, right? You built an award-winning uh, company. You're a qualified, in fact, as a master NLP practitioner. You're a hypnotherapist and a thought field therapist. What got you into that? I actually developed, um, I don't know how you call it across the world, chronic fatigue syndrome or ME. I developed that in my very early 40s. I was in my own business at the time and it, I developed it extremely badly. It was still called yuppie flu in those days. Everyone thought it was just this nonsense that people made up, you know, and it absolutely poleaxed me. I was I was bed bound and then house bound, and it, it took me years to get out of it. And in the process of that happening, I lost an awful lot. You know, I, I lost control of my business. I lost. I was ended up in income support and social security, and I had my daughter to bring up. And I know there will be people, there, there may well be people who listen to this who have chronic fatigue syndrome or ME, and to, uh, I would, wouldn't want to offend anyone. I personally felt, because I believe so strongly in the mind-body connection, that I had to be able to influence how my body was through my mind and diet and all the other stuff. Now, there are some people who would say that that is absolutely not the case, and I know it's a very controversial topic, but it was my personal opinion that it, the chances are that something could be done. And so I started, because I could, reading about, learning about NLP, 
Vocal therapy, Reiki, acupressure, and acupuncture. And of course, I'd been in that slightly what you might call hippy trippy trail for years, in the sense that ever since the Tao of physics, I had felt very strong affinity between what we might call hard science here and Eastern mysticism. So to me, there was nothing strange about, well, there might be this all this random shit out there that makes a difference. And so I I really pursued all of that. And then I discovered that in it helping me, that actually then I could help other people. And so that's very much born out. I mean, I use it all the time. Can you give like an example that you would maybe think is silly? Because we may assume that someone, you know, would not be aware of something, but then whatever you may say can be kind of life-changing for someone. And you mean in terms of the application of it, how I would use it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the... NLP is another one of those things which has been, you know, quite heavily overused and derided and at a very surface level. But at its most basic level, NLP is about the value of the language and how the mind works. We need to remember that we each create our own internal representation of the world. And we create it by filtering everything that we see, hear and sense through our own filters. And they've been created by our own beliefs and values and environment and culture. And therefore, when we meet someone we have a tendency to look at this other person and our tendency is to think that they are like us. We, are, we either think they're like us or they're not like us at all. And for me, the big thing is to hold in your mind the fact that when people speak to you, the very words they use in any language will tell you what is going on in the inside of their framework, how they see the world, how they process the world. And it will give you an ability to slink through the filters so that what you say to them lands in the way that it is intended for them. Because I don't know how often you've spoken to someone or someone has spoken to you and it's been a complete misunderstanding. The world is full of misunderstandings. The idea is to be able to get through that process and also to engage rapport with someone to the point where they're willing to be able to do that. So that that process of I think for me, one of the, the biggest things, and you know, over the years I've done so much stuff in actual engineering and then the work that I do in businesses in the earlier years was much more what I would call transactional. It was more almost engineering and business. It was about the finances. It was about operations. It was about sales and marketing. And all of those things are important, but there is nothing more important or more impactful than the people and how you develop and grow them. I get that. And you mentioned misunderstandings. It's lots linked to miscommunication and empathy, because if you can't empathize at the core of human relationships to conduct business and not to understand, you know, what do they really need? Why would their customers care? Why can they perform? How are they performing and all of this? And this, this tends to be dismissed from my experience. That is not like 50 odd years. This is key in most businesses and it can be very easily overlooked. So how do they come to you? Why do they come to you in the first place? And you also say that you can achieve this, which is great. Like you only work with people you like. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm very, very fortunate in that I have never, ever gone out and looked for work. Well, that's not strictly true. I go out and I talk to people. Every client I have is someone who has come to me through someone or the parent of me or the or we've bumped into something somewhere. You know, I have in the past, I've worked with a few people I didn't like and God, it wasn't worth it. And I don't want to work with people who are uncoachable. Um, I don't coach. I have to say it when I say uncoachable, I don't coach and I must remember to change it on my website. I'm not a good coach. I'm far too directive, but I am very, very lucky 
in that my personality is quite Marmite. People either like what I am and who I am and what I stand for and how I transmit what I think. And for some people, they would absolutely hate it. That's, that's fine because we'll never work together. And other people, other people love it. They're open to the challenge. They're open to the laughter. They're open to the having to become humble because I'm constantly making mistakes. And I want to work with people who are constantly, because the faster you do that, the faster you learn. Obviously, you get introduced or recommended and so on. But what are the main challenges? Or are they always aware that, you know, they need help? Well, well, they usually come for a practical reason. They usually come because the business has hit problems. So either it is in crisis and, and for some time until a few years ago, I did quite a lot of crisis turnaround. And that's an obvious, that's a no brainer. And you start with the engineering bits of the business and you fix those and you bolt it all back together. And then you try to make it so that it's more sustainable and developable and healthy. I don't like turnaround so much now because it's deeply, deeply stressful and you're up to your tonsils, you know, 24-7, seven, seven days a week in it. But the majority of the rest come often because of a sense of frustration that they, they, they've actually done quite well. They've done pretty well, but they know that they're not delivering and they're not getting the results that they want to see and they think they should be getting. They can't work it out. Why? And it's usually that sense of people who end up with me tend to be good. They tend to be creative. They tend to be very hardworking. And they just haven't necessarily had time to acquire some of the tools and some of the knowledge that they need because they've been too busy doing what they're doing. And that's that's just a fact of life in business. Because I'm in the SME space. Remember that I don't work in big corporates. I work in SMEs. Now, SMEs, they can be very big businesses. Yes, for sure. But usually at the point when I get they haven't got this massive corporate structure where they're resourced to the hills. Everybody's doing a bit of everything. Everyone has been doing some of everything for a while. And the, the bandwidth available to take time to step back, think, process usually hasn't been there. You're saying that some of them are kind of working in the business rather than on their business in yeah. a way. And some probably think they know what they want, or but they don't necessarily know what they need. Yeah. And this is where you kind of come in. Yeah, absolutely. That... I mean, sometimes they don't know what they want, other than the fact that they don't want to feel the way they feel just now. You know, that's sometimes, and this is back to your gut, they don't know what it is. They just know that this is not what it is. And so how do we get to, oh, what's the thing that's going to bring you joy and satisfaction and challenge and fulfillment? How do we get that there if this is the environment in which you're doing it? So you help them take a step back, you act kind of as a sounding board, give them, you said, you give them more direction than coaching, but you probably still do a bit of coaching in that, right? Yes. I mean, it is a bit of coaching, obviously. Some teaching, sometimes people just need to be exposed to some knowledge they didn't have before. And almost none of my knowledge is unique to me. It's usually accumulated and synthesized from all over the place. So I do have, I mean, you can't see just now, but I've got 3,000 books in this house. And, you know, I've been learning for years. And so I, there's usually something somewhere that I can say, well, if you read Charles Handy or if you looked at Jim Collins or whomever, you would find out how people have done things before, what worked, what didn't. Because people need a lot of reference points in their life so they can start to identify where they should place their confidence in thinking. I don't want them to think like me, and I want them to get the confidence in knowing that they can come to their own conclusions, but know, first of all, how to establish enough information in order to form a conclusion. 
And very often people who've been very, very, very busy in business haven't had time to read and think and talk to people and meet colleagues and meet peers and just do that osmosis learning that you get the chance to do. If you're doing a very big business, you get the chance to do that very often if you're lucky. No, absolutely. Because I also worked in uh, corporate level and with startups and it's really different dynamics, but you get exposed to a lot also in the corporations because there is also time and budget are in place. And sometimes it's not necessarily the right kind of training that you need or that you want, but it's there, there's lots of... Uh... And I think people forget this. We learn a lot from knowing what is not right. Exactly. And so sometimes get doing training and, and you come out of it and you think, well, I didn't get anything from that. Well, what didn't you get? Because they couldn't tell you what they wanted, but they can tell you what they didn't get. Yeah. Human beings are very good in the negative. And as instincts, I do a huge amount of training in businesses just now, but it's not training as you might know it. It's, it's much broader. It's much, it's much looser. It's much more providing of fertile soil from which people can grow their own. It's very hard to get someone to start thinking in a different way. Because it's all about yeah. the mindset in general. So rewiring the mindset of a team or a person or a company that taps into the company culture and everything is very difficult, uh, no matter what they try to do. Because sometimes the amount of time that would be wasted would be just clear for you just yeah. before they even start doing anything. But yeah. you need to get their brain wired in that direction. Yeah. I, think in a so I think you've put it absolutely beautifully, Maria, because I think the shortcut is the thing. And the, the challenge is that people will spend huge amounts of time on training programs, various development programs, many of which are very good and deliver a lot of information. But unless it is going into minds that are prepared for it and a culture which is fully formed for it, then it will go nowhere. And the single biggest thing you can teach people right at the start at the beginning is work out what your culture is and then model it at every level, all the time. Hold yourself to account. Because people will learn more from watching their colleagues and watching their manager and controlling their own behavior so that anyone watching them copies that. You will get that through an organization like DNA faster than anything else if everyone understands, buys into, agrees with them. There's a business ideally with a sense of purpose, good purpose that delivers something of good to individuals or organizations or the planet. And they just model it and it's like living and breathing. It doesn't yeah. need to be on the wall. It needs to be on the surface of your skin and in your voice and in your emotions and in your conversation. And that's where it comes from. And this idea of the mindset thing is not just for business. It's also about day-to-day -day life, especially if we talk about retired people who are just used to a certain routine mm -hmm. because this is how they've been living for like 50 years. And then suddenly they retired. They don't know what to do. They sit mm -hmm. on the couch and watch TV, right? Read a book and that's it mm -hmm. because they can't take any risk. And it's kind of the same idea. This is the most challenging, I guess, aspect, but it can start with small rituals. As well, I mean, when I was working in the corporate world, one thing I started doing was something I called pizza hour. Mm -hmm. And I, ma I managed to get like the partners to buy pizza. Mm -hmm. Like we would like either the company would pay mm -hmm. for the pizzas or uh, each one would pay for their own pizza. So we had both and get everyone for lunch, like from the team and to talk about a specific topic, a specific project, something they did at university or invite someone. But mm -hmm. what happened here is some other teams got jealous. 
So they started doing that. These are little things or little rituals that one can start implementing maybe in a company. I'm just saying that because I'm curious about the trainings you do that are different and this mindset shift also you work on because you said it's not training as you know it. So I assume it's not mentoring as you know it, advising as you know it. No, it's not. I mean, I think just, just going back for one moment to what you were saying about habits and breaking little habits. I think if everyone could grasp the idea of neuroplasticity, then everyone would be much happier because this idea of you can't teach an old dog new tricks and I am who I am or, you know, that's how he's always done it. It takes so little, so little to change down, to break down those existing patterns in your brain and to create new ones. And little things like writing with your opposite hand, your non-dominant hand, changing the way you go to work. And the teaching and the training, I don't know, it's not training, it's not teaching. Do you know what? I don't know what it is, Maria. I do a Wednesday session with one of my clients every Wednesday lunchtime. And it's 45 minutes where they turn up online in Zoom. I say, bring your sandwiches or put your earpods in or go for a walk or something. I talk about something that is interesting, that um, it could be around, let's, let's have a look at critical thinking. Let's have a look at neuroplasticity. Let's have a look at gut instinct. Let's talk about internal representations and differences. Um, it can be a whole host. I, I literally just pluck them out of the sky. It's very disordered. And a lot of people say to me, well, you know, could you make it into a much more formal thing? Well, of course, there are certain outcomes that you want, but the, how you get there is very different. And another thing, I've, just before joining this call, I was going around my bookshelves making a list of all the books that I think are worth taking as little, what does this person think sessions? And so we're going to start doing some of those. Not to say this is received wisdom, you have to believe in it all, but just add it in to your body of thinking. I'd love to be clearer about how I do what I do. And I think one of the big challenges, and I'm sorry if I'm rabbiting over, one of my big challenges is that all, everything I do is usually direct, live, either literally face-to-face -face or face-to-face -face on Zoom. It's not well codified. It would be very difficult to write it down. It would take the life and the energy out of it to write it down. And so if anyone has any brilliant ideas about how to help me do that, to turn it to framework that I can take out, I would love to hear from them because I'm stuck. I find it very hard to define what I do because I can't put it in one sentence and very difficult. But sometimes I think it's about making a decision but then you feel you're missing out on another chunk where maybe you feel that or you've seen that you've added value also in a different way. So I guess many people go through this. I'm curious to know what is it that keeps you going? And probably this is what keeps you going, that you feel you're stuck sometimes. I think there would be almost no greater curse for me to be able to wake up in the morning and say, I know exactly how to get all the various workings of my mind out into a format. I don't know whether it's a video or writing or whatever it is, and it's done and it's clear and it's perfect. I think that would probably just, I would just die. That said, I feel like I'm dying of frustration right now because I don't know how to go with me into one-to-many as opposed to one-to-one -to -one or one-to-a-small group whether you're building an intimate connection. And for me, that feels like an important next part of my journey. I have actually decided the sort of thing that people do when they get to my age. You try and work out how long do I think I have left and what would I like to do with it? And I work on the principle, I think I have 20, 20 years left. Now, if I think back to where I was at 50 to 70, wow, that was a journey. So I think there's a 
hell of a mountain still to climb and an awful lot still to do. And I am stuck with the how to do it because I want to do it on a bigger scale than I'm doing now. And I don't know how to do that. And maybe I never will. And maybe I'll still be saying 89. I have no idea how to do that. I've reading books about this as well, because this is my personal frustration. <laughs> because I also don't want to be working and making money out of hours I'm working for, because it's also too limited and limiting. It's not just about money. It's about seeing how you can add value because you touch on repeating yourself. Mm. And yes, I mean, in this field, you will be repeat and you do repeat yourself all the time, I guess. And then at some point you're like, I wish I recorded that because I'm repeating it and saying the same thing again for the next eight hours or yeah. over 52 weeks, right? So <laughs> to different people. Yeah. So. I think, I think in a way, oh, this is not at all a format that we work because it's very different, but you know, Steve Bartlett's the guy of a CEO, that as a notion has been incredibly, incredibly clever because he gets very, very talented people on there in the main for them to talk about their lives and people can dip in. So that in terms of his notion of how, and it's not even his knowledge, his knowledge is the, is the mechanism, is the engineering behind it. Um, my daughter did one of those actually, and it was brilliant. You must watch it. It's very good. But yes, then I think, and and I think this is a really interesting thing. If you if you go, were to go back thousands of years, how did you know Epictetus and you know, Archimedes and and all these and Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius, how did they transmit all their knowledge? Well, they transmitted it. Some of these things, of course, were never written down. They were they were only ever spoken. And there was someone else who transcribed after the event. We're in the same challenge now as to how to take wisdom. And it tends to be universal wisdom. The sorts of things we're talking about, you and I, I think, are not, they're not skill specific. They're not content specific. They tend to be meta wisdom. They're things that will apply in many different locations, in many different circumstances to many different people. And it's rather like, um, Aesop's fables, you know, one will take out of them whatever is relevant for you at the time. So, and that's the challenge. So there, there's the message for you, Marie, if you can work it out for me or any one of your listeners can work it out, how to take something which is meta and turn it into something which can be spread more universally one to many. Yeah. And we have 20 years to achieve that. 20 years. <laughs> so I'll be very cross. <laughs> No, I mean, yes, it looks like you never want to stop, which is amazing, actually. So, why uh... I would, I can't. I, there is a little bit of me that would quite like, I would quite like to make, make more of a thing out of writing, but I suspect the writing, I want to go on to fiction. I have some fiction ideas, but I always want to get out and talk to people and teach people and motivate, etc. Yeah, I think I didn't know where this podcast would go with like any direction but I hear I find myself you asking for like advice to everyone like everyone who's listening uh, which is that's, that's how, that's the only way you can get anything in life is to ask and you never know who is out there thinking I know how to do that I mean yeah you have to ask the universe you have to ask the universe you have to get it out there no, no, for sure. And, and um, I'm happy to chat also offline after because I think, well, if I may give my two pence worth, <laughs> since you're asking, I'm the first one to, <laughs> before we publish this episode, the most difficult part for you from, you know, the, like the like 20 minutes I got to know you from, would be to let go of this face-to-face, one-on-one 
idea. Yes, of course, yeah. And taking this to the next level. And I think once you're, you want to push for that, then the rest can be, I'm not going to say easy, but much easier. I mean, especially with all your experience and so on. But that's the challenging part. Yeah. That, and and what you've, you've actually pulled out there, Maria, which I hadn't quite landed on before, but I got it when you were saying that, is that the reason that the one-to-one and the face-to-face or the small group together has worked for me, and this is the challenge, is that I react to whatever has happened and come towards me. So I can go in any one of a number of directions. The original purpose, the output that I want to get to will still be there, but the how I do it will move. I might be talking about this writer or that sportsman or this thing about science. And that's the problem. Everything I do is entirely interactive with whoever I'm talking to. So there we go. There's the challenge. You've pulled it out. We're getting away from that so that the stimulus is coming back in. And I can say, well, ah, here's a better example. Here's a model. Here's a, yeah. Back in 2020, when I think um, we kind of all got to know how to live with COVID and all of that, especially in Italy, living with masks and so on, I had to go back to university. Actually, they were waiting to do my session once they reopened uh, the school. So because I was doing stuff online at another university, that was really, really tough because I was the only one on camera. <laughs> I couldn't see the students. Yeah. And even like some of them came last year to uh, like an alumni reunion, whatever. And some were like, hey, how are you? And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> you know, Because <laughs> I've never seen their faces. Um, so that was back in September 2020. And this was my first experience like in class uh, with students. Now, I always knew that I like to do stuff face to face, like workshops or sessions or whatever. And not only I had to wear a mask, they had to wear a mask. I had to wear a face shield as well. And I have oh, a my... little voice. I have a look. Yeah. My voice is not that, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, loud. So it was very interesting because there were so many, you know, asks from mm-hmm. the university where, you know, you, if you conduct a workshop, people need to interact. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't interact. So I had to come like earlier in the morning and put scotch tape on the floor like colored like uh, to, and mark markers to see where students can stand up as mm-hmm. a team and mm-hmm. how to keep social distancing and I had to focus on asking them to wear their masks and things like that but this is when I also realized that okay it can't be like that I mean last year I said I'm not teaching uh, uh, in class I'm, I'm happy to do stuff online I'd rather know from the beginning that I'm not going to see anyone and at least my brain is prepared for that and I can maybe anticipate rather than being in the classroom and not seeing their facial expressions, because I improvise a lot as well. I come with a plan, but so flexible as long as we have the objective there. So for me, that was a turning point where I'm like, okay, I I need to rethink everything because, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things was I'm completely going online, Mm -hmm. Um, which I'm not saying I like or don't like, but I just learned to yeah, live with it and and I'm exploring, okay, other ways of doing things that mm-hmm. are more saleable. Yeah. But for me, that was an experience. And, and I don't know if it makes sense for you. No, it makes sense. That makes, absolutely makes complete sense. And it's a, it's a really, really interesting challenge. I mean, I think there are so many upsides to us mo- to taking this. I mean, I think it's a 10-year acceleration and the move towards remote learning and remote communication and hybrid working. And much of it is absolutely brilliant and outstanding. And some of it isn't. <laughs> and and we're still trying to work out the best ways of doing that. And I am a, I am a huge believer in 
the power of physical energy and presence. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, and you can put some of that, you know, a bit of that into a recording or a video or whatever it is, but we do need, human beings need each other. We regulate each other by our physical presence, by our, by our literal physical presence. And it's a bit like you talking about your gut. But for, for many, many years, people have been saying, you know, you need to get out of your body and into your mind and work with your mind. And this is one of the most damaging things that has ever happened. We need to be firmly rooted in our bodies with our minds interacting with it. And then we have this external spiritual, if you choose to believe it, and I do, or energetic part of yourself. And those three work in symbiosis all the time. And so we have to be mindful of that. There's no extremes. The, the, the mixture is so important for regulating ourselves, regulating each other. How do you mentor and how do you advise? And is this for the same kind of profiles? Because I have built my own business, run my own business, and I have worked in other people's businesses now for a long time, I have a very, very good understanding of what I call the engineering of a business. What should a P&L and cash flow and balance sheet look like? What should your operations look like? What should your, your organizational structure look like? What should your sales team be doing and your marketing team be doing? And, and what should your managers be doing? I'm very good at saying, whoa, you are massively overheated in this area or you're not doing enough of this or you're paying too much attention to the wrong thing. I'm very good at doing the stuff which would be Imagine if you brought in a general manager or a deputy CEO because someone's gone off sick. It's the sort of person that a brand new leader would come in and say, oh, we need to tidy this up. That's that's what I call basic housekeeping. And a lot of what I do starts with the basic housekeeping because quite honestly, and I say it all the time, a granny could do, I am a granny, but a granny could do a lot of what I do because the new pair of eyes coming into anything very easy to critique things because you see it from the outside in. It's not, that is not rocket science. It's not terribly clever. And you could bring in an awful lot of different people who would be able to do just as good a job as I can do, probably better. In the process of doing that, you have to educate and move and mentor the person who is ultimately the decision maker to move them into a position that they are not just willing to go on that journey with you, but they actually start walking ahead of you a bit and they, they start to adapt themselves to a new paradigm for how they might be in their business and how the business might be. So that's more mentoring. So it's partly show and tell. It's partly, let me just go and fix that. Now you see how I've done that. Like you did that and then yeah, you model it, they do it, they then pick it up and off they go. Because the thing that's always worth remembering is that in not in every case, but I would have said nine out of 10 cases of the CEOs that I work with, they are extremely talented people. They're often much more talented people in their, certainly in their field than I am. And they're sometimes much more talented in the wider sense, much broader. And they just have to be tweaked. Because, you know, if you go to a basketball team or a baseball team, the, the coach on the sidelines has never been the supreme athlete not my job to be the supreme athlete, my job to help them be the supreme. So it's it's a bit of that. And, and you make yourself redundant. But fortunately, they tend to hang around or stick around in, in some form. Yeah, because we, you start with a minimum of three months, right? Yeah. I could, what I saw. 
I agree at a minimum of three months, but you know, I mean, I've got clients who've been with me for years and years and years. You often start out very intensive and then it tapers and tapers and tapers and then it becomes perhaps a non-exec position or just a handhold or an advisory. So, I mean, I, I just go up and down with the business as it needs. I don't want to be in an intrinsic to a business. I, it's not my job to do that. So you're working primarily with the CEOs. Do you also work with their teams? Yeah. I, I usually work with the next team down because they have to get the next team down to buy in and then you have to get them able to transmit it down the organization. Yeah. So you're talking about housekeeping. So in the, the way you're putting it together also, and um, it's something I guess um, CEOs need is like a sounding board, right? Like someone to give them a perspective of what's happening, like a fresh perspective, an outside yeah. view, uh, not to tell them how to do the little bits in their business. Oh. But oh. Uh, so that's... Uh, well, it, it's like making them aware of things they're not necessarily aware of and helping them prioritize, which is another element. Uh... Oh, absolutely. And also um, allowing them to safely test out what their gut is telling them. Because sometimes I will go in and within three weeks I'll say, that person is wholly in the wrong place. And they'll say, well, I was thinking that, but I didn't know. But they haven't yet trusted themselves to do it. And so when you go in and you say, oh, no, not that one, put them somewhere else or whatever. Yeah, helping them to, to trust themselves. I mean, it is, it is an old hackbeat phrase that being a CEO is a very lonely place to be, but it genuinely is. And if I was to offer one piece of advice to any CEO anywhere in the world, in any sector, in any business, is you have to learn true humility and because it's only with true humility that you will be able to go back into your organization ask the right questions listen properly and take chances on implementing things and take chances on you being wrong and them being wrong but the only place to learn that humility is if first of all test it with someone else learn this is where i come into play you get the chance for them to say i'm not too sure about that or i'm not comfortable with that or I don't know about that or I absolutely fundamentally disagree with you and I will never do that over my dead body and argue it out with me first because that I mean I, I'm, a, I'm a massive fan of Satya Nadella um, not that I've ever met Satya Nadella yeah yeah but you know um, everything you see about how he has impacted Microsoft everything you read from him see with them the man is a walking case of grounded humility. And that is the most powerful, impressive type of energy of all. And that's a hard one to learn when you have to go in in silverback mode in the morning. You're talking about asking the right questions. This is the most difficult, I think, thing mm. to do. I'm not going to say for everyone, but for many. It's not just about asking. Sometimes it can be confused with asking. And this goes across an organization in general, because sometimes they want to hear what they want to hear and not the reality of things from CEO to anyone yep. in the company. And sometimes it's because they don't really know how to do it, you know, how to reverse it and see what is it here that I need to understand and ask the question from mm -hmm. that perspective. There are two very important things there. I mean, I think I recommend everyone spends time and pays attention to, is it Marshall Rosenberg's book, Nonviolent Communication? The difference between challenge state and threat state language, the way people ask questions, I think everyone in every organization should be taken through that process and have making that psychological safety the core of the business all the time. 
And the second thing is that this is where humility comes into play. You have to have psychological safety first in order to bring the humility. This is why it doesn't work the other way around. And the great advantage of having been a woman all these years and being a woman in boardrooms is that the number of times I've had conversations or, you know, sometime between board meetings and another director will say, oh, I'm really uncomfortable about this. And I will bring it up and I'll look around all the male heads are down scribbling on the table because they don't want to be seen to be asking the difficult questions. My mantra has been ever since I started doing this work with wider organisations, I have to be prepared to ask the questions that someone's going to want to fire me for. It's as simple as that. I have to be able to say, I need to ask this question. I need to understand this better. And if I don't get the answer to keep going until everyone around me lifts their heads up and says, actually, now that she's mentioned it, I'd quite like to know how. And it is not just a male-female dynamic, but it was, of course, in the past, very much the male-female dynamic. Psychological safety, non-violent communication and humility. And if you have those three in place, a business can move mountains. I was going to ask you as well about this male-female. So do you feel that because you're a woman, honestly, I don't know how to word this because in the world we live in today, it's very difficult if I need to add pronouns or not to what we're saying. So I just don't get it. But anyway, let's just being a woman, if you identify as a woman, do you feel that because of the way you are, you're able to tap or see or perceive specific details that men don't? I don't actually think so. I mean, I have worked with some absolutely outstanding men in my time. I mean, one of the the guy who was the chairman of my own business, Alan Wood, years ago, still an absolute hero of mine, just an extraordinary mind, incredible character and integrity and wonderful calm aura to him that made it possible to deal with any problem and any challenge. And I've worked with some very difficult women and I've maybe been with myself. I don't know. What I would say is that There are still certain pockets of the world and certain pockets of society where being female, being a woman is not an advantage. And men can still sometimes behave a bit boys clubby, but it's coming harder for them. I find my greatest inspiration and hope of all of this is my daughter who has absolutely stormed through a world full of men and is sitting comfortably at the top of the current forest that she's in. And I'm sure she's got many more forests to go through. I have in my time, I mean, I started as an engineer when there weren't any female engineers. I was in business in the city and finance in the 80s. Holy moly. I mean, you can't even begin to imagine what that was like. I think it is dramatically better. But I think the only thing that you can ever do is to try and be honest and true to what you feel you need to say. And at least we do have now legislation and employment law that supports people, any people who have been prejudiced against in their working environment. Can you perceive more subtle details that men can't? I think sometimes I can. I would say that what I've become aware of myself over the last 20 years in particular, is the spectrum of neurodiversity across the sexes and across many types of neurodiverse capability. And I've certainly seen there are people who have much more highly empathetic, humanistic approaches to work where they get to see something which is not the cold hard fact. And therefore they're able to see a nuance to things. I think women are predisposed towards that more naturally. 
there are also a large number of people males who are also neurodiverse and see that too. And it's interesting you should ask because I've spent literally decades having to get under the skin of what makes people tick. And a lot of it takes a lot of time because you need to be in conversation, in proximity, in various situations and see all the diversity of their reactions to things. And I recently came across a profiling tool, a psychological profiling tool, which is about people's motivations, which my daughter told me about. And I now use that and absolutely blows me out of the water at how much more quickly it shortcuts the ability to understand how is this person going to, what's their motivation going to be for how they behave in a certain situation. And that somehow, finally, after all these years, I've got a tool that I can use. Okay. Yeah, no, my question was like to you in that sense, but equally men would maybe probably see things in a different way. I try as far as humanly possible. And not just because of, you know, recent developments and how we talk about people, but I try as far as humanly possible not to do too much of the men versus women. Because mm -hmm. I now do very much see that there were an awful lot of women who didn't get the chance to show their more assertive side because they had it tamped down for so long. And there were an awful lot of men who never had the opportunity to display what was actually not a comfortable place for them to be and they wanted to be in a much more emotional, empathetic situation. So I, I hope what's happening is that the differences will stay, but also will blend a little bit better across the board. And are there any patterns across CEOs, men or male or female, doesn't matter, that you've observed over the years that are still recurring, like in your 50-odd you know, career? Yeah, we do have a tendency, and I don't know, it's bad luck, I think, perhaps, some of the characteristics, of course, lend themselves to leadership, to fighting through things, to, you know, getting in front of a team. But this is why I keep coming back to the humility thing, because it doesn't play, it not only doesn't play in today's world to behave in some of the more aggressive ways that people can behave. It's not healthy for them. It doesn't create for a very successful, sustainable, happy business. How do you work together so you can both see the progress and ultimately achieve results. So the, the first thing you have to do to create anything is you have to have a profitable, sustainable, healthy business. With a profitable, sustainable, healthy business, you, you've got a platform to do something in. So you've got to work on that first and you've got to be in agreement about what that means and what that looks like. Then you can start to say, now, what is the growth potential for this business? What is the scalability of this business? If, what's it going to need? Is it going to need more education, more people, more upskilling? And you need more verticals. Do you need more product? Do you need whatever it is? And you move people towards that and you get an agreement. So this is partly strategic, you know, implementation, strategy and tactics. Whoever I'm working with, we have to be in alignment around what that looks like because that is the vehicle in which we are moving. You're going from like the, the perspective of having a healthy, profitable business. What if the business is unhealthy, unprofitable, or sort of healthy, but not profitable or under the bus business, but with something that has a market, right? So let's see. Provided all businesses are there to provide something. So actually, there's an awful lot of businesses out there producing things, services and products, but actually no one out there particularly wants it. 
you know, there's an awful lot of that. I mean, you're in design and you understand this probably better than I do. But at the end of the day, you have to have a market for whatever it is you're selling. You have to be fulfilling a need. And that's more important than the word market. Yeah, people mix those things up. They forget that whatever you're doing, you need to kind of get the mechanics right first. And you need to make sure that you're producing something that people out there need and that you are laser focused on delivering to their need, not what you want to build. Yeah, no, I get that. And laser focused, but also aware of what's happening around because things oh, yeah. can change. That's the balance, right? Finding the balance oh. of how to stay focused and how not to screw up just because we got excited about something else. You know, we've had Brexit, we've had COVID, yep. had massive inflationary challenges across the globe. We've had supply chain issues. There are probably 20 things business could list that they could not have predicted. You could have put it on the risk register. A horrible, perfect storm has come in around you and there was nothing you could do about it. And you just have to pick yourself up, learn from it and keep moving forward because it's happening everywhere. And I, I grieve for the people who might think that they failed. They could maybe have done better in little bits, but that's, that's life. I personally believe in like everything like happens for a reason. So Sometimes those things happen, like Brexit, whatever. But look at the positive side of it. How can we take advantage of that? I'm not saying it's always the case, but sometimes it could be, right? That might be a challenging, different program to someone else. But what are the upsides of Brexit? I don't know. It's fascinating. Going back to the strategies and, you know, plans they might put in place in general for the next five, ten years. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. No. So we need this flexibility as well. And this is, I think, where you come in, right? That's why it's so important that you know your numbers, you understand your business, you have a good hold on it. Because you need to be able to pivot or to tweak very fast. And you can't do that if you can't work out even where you are. So it was great to meet you. And I don't know if there are maybe two, three books you want to recommend. Oh, gosh, I don't know if I can remember what books. Oh, The Management Myth. Read The Management Myth. That's, I flippin' love it. Let me see if I can find who it's by. Matthew Stewart. Okay, I'll be putting other links. Okay. Yeah. So The Management Myth, uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Yeah. I actually really do love Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. It's a book about writing almost, but actually it's also a book about life and how you just get through things. And of course, if you go back to the very, very basics of management, you've got High Output Management by Andrew Grove. I could go on endlessly about all the other ones that I love, the intention experiments, the bond and molecules of emotion, the body keeps the score. The ones, the books I truly love are the ones that are not about business. <laughs> but someone can always message you and ask for book recommendations, I guess. <laughs> if anyone ever wants to message and ask anything, I'd be very happy to... Um, talk to anyone or give them any little snippets. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Thank you so much for being on Gut Talks. Oh, thank you for having me. It starts with the gut. It ends with the gut. It's in your gut. Gut Talks.